Morning, guys. Morning. How are you doing? Good. If we, had the chance, if we hadn't had the chance to meet, my name's Daniel. I have the honor and joy of helping start the Mountain Church and providing pastoral oversight. I get to preach today. And before we get into the text, I want to draw your attention to a giving tree that's in the bar here on, off to the room to my left. And we have uh, essentially gathered needs of those in our community that are in need this Advent season. And we've written out little ways that you can give to those families. So you could take a tag off the tree. It might be like small hoodie. Um, and you buy that gift and bring it back to us. If you could have it back to us by December 18th, that'd be great. But I just want to remind you there's a, or just let you know, there's a giving tree um, here in the cafe room or bistro or whatever we're calling this room. All right. You guys ready to get into the passage? We are finishing off our study in 2 Samuel. If you can believe that. We've been journeying through the book of Samuel for the last 15 weeks. And we come to the end of the book, 2 Samuel chapter 24, today. We, we started the church spring of 2016, Easter Sunday. We had 12 people come together to covenant together and become members of the Mountain Church, March 27th, 2016. And we felt led to start a church in the South King County that was a community that was to be centered on the gospel of Jesus. What would it look like if, a, if at the center of a community was the gospel? A church that would proclaim the good news of Jesus and we wanted to help people learn to love God so that in turn, they would love their neighbors as themselves. We've made a lot of mistakes along the way. We've learned a lot of things these last years, <laughs> six years, coming up on seven years. It's hard to believe. And each week, we want to be reminded of the love of God. We believe it's the love of God that we respond to that in turn grows our love for him and our love for others. So each week, we want to look at the love of God, how it's revealed in Jesus, in the gospel, through the scriptures. So I don't think people are changed. People are motivated in, in a pure, joyful way by rules. I've seen this from pastoral ministry, and I've seen this as a parent. Rules do not change the hearts of people. I've also seen people seek to change through simply trying harder. As if, if I can just change my behavior, then I'll have peace and joy and life will be well. It doesn't work. I've been, been come convinced. I've become is the right way to say that. I've become convinced that the way that we change and the way that God has instructed us and planned for us to change is as we see more and more of the beauty of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what Paul writes to the church in Corinthians, beholding the glory of God, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So it's, it's, it's as we behold Jesus, we, we come to his word, we see the glory of God. We're formed more into the image of Jesus. So I, I hope to do that today. Amen? Amen? Through 2 Samuel 24, we believe God's word is true. It's to us. It's authoritative. It's ultimately pointing to Jesus. And we want to consider that each week. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 24. We've been looking at really the, the end of Samuel is the last four chapters of 2 Samuel. It forms a kind of epilogue. But the last chapter is a story of anger, judgment, 
mercy and deliverance. And you can break up the text into three sections. First is the Lord's anger, his incitement, his census in verses 1 through 9. That's the first section. Second section, verses 10 through 17, the Lord's judgment on David's sin. And the last section, verses 18 through 25, the Lord's deliverance. Right? David builds an altar. The plague is averted from the land. So let's look at the first section there, verses 1 through 9. And it starts like this. Again, the anger of the Lord. You'll notice your Bible probably has Lord in all caps. And that's a way of signifying the personal name of God. It's called Yahweh. And God's speaking to a man named Moses. He, Moses says, hey, what, what am I going to say? Who, who sent me to, to go talk with the Pharaoh and, and to let my people go to deliver my people? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. So there's a sense in which that's the name of God, but it's also not a name. Like no one was before God who named him. God is. Like he is the reality that, that am. It's like I, I is who I is. It's like there's, I am who I was, I will be, I am to come. It's just, he's the, the reality. I am who I am. So that would sound kind of weird for Moses to say, that, you know, I am. So he says he is who he is. So Yahweh. God has also, uh, in the sense he has no name, he also has many names, right? Lord, Adonai, Elohim, Father, Master, God, Everlasting One. Right, but that Lord in all caps is the personal name of God, and that's a way of Jewish scribes. They wanted to honor and revere the name of God so much so they didn't want you to say it. So they came with Adonai, and later English scribes would translate just all caps, Lord. So it's the personal name of God. The anger of Yahweh, the anger of the Lord, was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now, I had all kinds of questions when I studied this. What does incite mean? Why does God incite him? Why is he angry? Why is it kindled against Israel? Right? If you look at the story, kind of a quick glance, without considering deeply or thinking about it, it, you can read it as if it seems like God gives a plan to David and then gets angry about it, and David is punished for the plan that God gave him. What? What's going on? I had questions, right? That's why I studied the Bible was questions. What does this mean? Let's dig in. I had a coach on freshman football team. He was a young coach, and he was a coach of wide receivers and defensive backs. And I remember that I have this distinct memory of him coaching the wide receivers on how to block on a particular running play. He says, go to the outside, you cut off the other receiver, you, two receivers to go block him, and the running back cuts up the inside. So after we're working on this drill, we go to a scrimmage where all the players are coming together. The offensive linemen, the running backs, the quarterback, we're all together, we're gonna run a play against a mock defense. And, and this, we're gonna run the play as our wide receiver coach has told us to do. And first snap of the ball. Wide receiver goes out, blocks the wide receiver, and running back is just destroyed by the linebacker. And the head coach goes, what are you doing? You went the wrong way on the play. You're supposed to go inside and cut off the linebacker. And the wide receiver coach, yeah, that's what I told you to do. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you're kidding me? It was, it was infuriating that he just so quickly, like, you know, it was like changed his mind or he didn't want to look bad. And it's like, is that what's happening in this story? God gives David an idea and then punishes him for it? It's important to note that God didn't incite David 
and then get angry about it. Do you notice that? It's not as though he randomly gets angry and he's like, oh, I'm so angry. I'm going to incite David to do this and then I'm going to get angry at David. So he's just uncontrollable, random. God, there's a reason for the Lord's anger. Even if it's not stated in the text, we're simply told the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and then he incited David. So the reason for the anger of the Lord is not stated here, but we can infer from the biblical narrative that when God gets angry, he has a reason. It's often because of the rebellion of his people. They have broken the covenant with him. They have, they're acting in contrary to the Torah. Right? And the Hebrew word incite can also mean lure, instigate. It could be thought of as prick. The word incite does not mean force, as if David was a mere puppet. It doesn't mean that David had no moral agency or responsibility in the decision that he made. In other words, the Lord did not force David to sin or tempt him to sin. James, the brother of Jesus, writes, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the reason you sin is it rises from your own heart. And there's a parallel account to this story that's recorded in Chronicles. And 1 Chronicles 21.1 says this, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. You read that and say, was, is that a contradiction? Not necessarily. If, if it was to say, God didn't incite David, that would be a contradiction. But we know from the story of Job that, that God actually can use Satan. <laughs> Whoa, wow. God is so big and sovereign and powerful, he can use evil somehow and still be good. And these two different authors, they have different characters as being the one who incited David, but there's no contradiction. I think they're more complementary. It seems that the, chronicle is, the chronicler is interpreting 2 Samuel 24 and saying that God is bringing kind of clarification that God might have used Satan to accomplish his purpose. Similar to the story of Job, we know God is sovereign over all things, including the enemy, to work and will for his good pleasure. And so that's an important note that he was angry against Israel before he incited David. And it's also important to note the, re the repetition of that word against in verse 1. See that? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So not only is the ang anger of God against Israel, but his, he, his inciting of David with the census was to bring judgment against Israel. One commentator notes, he, he instigated David to carry out the census to bring about the deserved punishment. In other words, the incitement of David was in order to bring judgment upon Israel. Does that make sense? Is crystal clear or clear as mud or somewhere in the middle? Right, we're not told why David's sin census was sinful. Elsewhere in the law, taking a census in itself is not sinful. Moses took a census twice of Israel in Numbers 1 and 26. It could have been that the census wasn't done in the right manner. According to the law, there should be atonement money that was collected during a census in Exodus. David possibly had a sinful motive in administering the census in wanting to count and kind of make a name for how great he was. He was relying upon his own strength and his might. But we see there that Joab doesn't seem to think that numbering the people was a good idea. He questions David. So this is in verse 3. My lord the king, may the lord your king add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my lord and the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? He's questioning him. Like, dude, 
may the Lord bless you and, and, and just give you so many people that it just outnumbers, but don't do this, essentially what he's saying. It says in verse four, the, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Joab's protesting of this shows this was not a good idea. And although Joab questions David, the word of the, of the king prevailed against Joab. And as the chapter unfolds, we'll see that David comes to see too that this census was sinful. So we've seen the, the Lord's anger incites David to do the census. Let's look at the second section, verses 10 through 17, the Lord's judgment on David's sin. It says, and after Joab and the commanders of the army numbered the people of Israel and Judah, David's heart struck him. And he confesses, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. For what I have done, I have done very foolishly. David is using a verb there that denotes moral deficient activity. <laughs> it's not good, dumb. The text doesn't specify David's motivation, right? We talked about it could have been a motivation of pride or self-sufficiency to number the people. It could be a desire to boast in his military strength. It could be a lack of trust in the Lord or all of those together. But it's important to note here that David does not blame God for his sin. He doesn't say, the Lord incited me. I'm not to blame for this. David accepts responsibility that he and he alone acted foolishly. He admits that he sinned against the Lord. And through the prophet Gad, we see the Lord brings judgment on David's sin. And the justice is seen in his punishment. We see three options for punishment. Number one, three years of famine. Two, three months of fleeing from their foes. And three is three days of pestilence. Repetition of the word three there. David says in verse 14, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. See what David is saying there? I'd rather come under God's judgment than man's judgment. I'd rather come under the mercy of God than anything from man. And David accepts the punishment of Yahweh, of the Lord. He knows that God is merciful, and 70,000 die from Dan to Beersheba. But the Lord relented as, his, as he comes towards Jerusalem. And David speaks to the Lord again and asks the hand of the Lord to be against him and his family. Look at verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. We see the great holiness of God here, displaying his judgment upon David. We also see the tender mercy of God as he relents. And let's circle back now to why might God have incited David? Why did the narrator tell us that? It's kind of confusing for us, isn't it? It makes, a, it, I mean, if we're honest, if I'm, if I'm being honest reading this, it makes me feel a, a little uncomfortable. Are we given any more insight in the story of why God would have done this? I think Joyce Baldwin remarks this. Accepting that David lapsed here and acknowledged his fault, we return to verse one and ask, what was the narrator wanting his readers to grasp from the thought-provoking way of introducing the incitement? Was he not drawing attention to the mysterious way in which God's plans for human history take place even the lapses of God's servants? So we're not told why God was angry. 
We're just told that he incited David. And what this is to do, I think, is to instill in us a wonder and worship of the mystery of God and how he works in the world. We're not told the details, why God was angry in the first place. Mary doesn't want us to, it's not as important to the story. The mysterious way that God brings about judgment on Israel inspires awe and reverence and worship. The mention of the Lord inciting David demonstrates that the sovereignty of God is over all things. Nothing happens outside of his direction or his control. And while there will be judgment through the prophet Gad, the story does not end in judgment. There's hope to come. And we see that hope in the last section of the story, verses 18 through 25. The final section of Samuel, 2 Samuel 24 describes the prophet Gad coming to David again and saying, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. David obeys the command of the Lord and buys this threshing floor to build an altar. And the chapter concludes with this verse. 25, and David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. David buys this land. He's directed by the prophet to buy this land. He builds an altar on it. He offers sacrifices, burnt offerings, and peace offerings on it, and the plague is averted. And if you just, if you don't read any further in the storyline of the Bible, and you just end the story there, it's a story of judgment and provision at the end. But if you continue to read, you see that the direction of the prophet Gad to David to buy this land, to build an altar, is a very significant site. And as we look at this story in the larger storyline of the Bible, I think there's some pretty cool things that stand out to us. The chronicler identifies this threshing floor as the site on which Solomon is going to build the temple. It's as though through judgment and mercy, the plan of God is seen in securing this location for the building of the temple. It's in the providence of God that David is directed to secure the site that will be the center of worship for the people on Mount Moriah. As in 2 Samuel 21, obedience resulted in removal of the threat to Israel and prayer was answered. The population had been depleted by 70,000, but the whole country had been given a reminder of spiritual realities in 2 Samuel 24. True prosperity was to be found in dependence upon their faithful covenant Lord and him alone. I think it's significant that the site of the temple is secured in this way to show mercy over judgment, salvation through judgment as almost a type of model, a reminder of for the people of Israel. It's significant that this, this is on the same site where Abraham reached out his hand to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. It's as if to show without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, as Hebrews 9.22 says. But the temple was built on this location. It would serve as a reminder for Israel that both the site and the altar served, in a sense, as a permanent sign of Yahweh's covenant love and mercy. Yes, there needs to be judgment upon sin, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Provision is made as a way to have the judgment of God averted. See, the Lord's anger and incitement, the census on David, we see the Lord's judgment on David's sin, and we see the Lord's deliverance. And David builds an altar at the end of the story. And that's the end of Samuel. Second Samuel. That's how the story ends. 
And it's in the story we see that the purpose of the Lord will stand, and as uncomfortable as it might make us feel, that the Lord even uses sinful choices and evil to accomplish his purposes. In his just anger at the people of Israel, he brought judgment through inciting David to number the people. And although, like we've mentioned before, we're not told what, the, what caused the Lord's anger to be kindled against Israel, as we place the story in the larger storyline of the Bible, we see that the Lord's anger is always just and fair and right. And while the anger of the Lord is not very popular today to talk about, to mention, the anger of God is, is what makes and reveals his justice. A God who does not get angry at evil and wickedness is not a good God. We get angry when seeing justice. At least we should. When we see someone else we love hurting, when we see someone hurting someone that we love, apathy towards evil and justice reveals a lack of love, a lack of goodness, a lack of justice, a lack of love for what is right. When we see God incite David, and this might make us uncomfortable, I, I want to submit to you that this should actually comfort us. This story is written in a way to comfort us when we see the sovereignty of God in this story, because it is a comfort to know that the same God who is over judgment, that it will take place, is over salvation and mercy and redemption. God present in judgment shows his presence in salvation and judgment. We see the sovereignty of God, the fact that he's Lord over all, that he's enacting judgment and mercy. This instills what I think it was supposed to instill for the people of Israel at this time, that our hope, our only offer for salvation and redemption is full dependence upon the Lord himself. Amen? It's to instill deeper trust, deeper dependence upon God as we see a story like this. It's to instill an awe-inspiring kind of fear of the Lord. Right? God, God tells Moses, do not fear, for God has come to you to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. I think that explains this tension of there's, there's no fear in perfect love, right? Love cast out fear, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, beginning of knowledge. Ecclesiastes says the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Pastor and author John Piper tells a story that goes like this. There is a fear that is slavish and drives us from God, and there is a fear that is sweet and draws us to God. The clearest illustration I have is seen in the good kind of fear was the time one of my sons looked a German shepherd in the eye. We were visiting a family from our church and my son was about seven years old and they had this huge dog that stood eye to eye with him when he was seven. And he was friendly. And my son had no problem making friends, but when we sent my son back to the car, he ran away from the dog, back to the car. And as he started to run, the dog galloped behind him and started to bark and growl. Of course, this frightened my son. And the owner of the dog said this, why don't you just walk? The dog doesn't like it when people run away from him. The fear of the Lord is to instill in us this kind of sweet drawing to depend upon him. Those who run from God will face the fierceness of God, but those who run to God will experience the tender mercies and the sweetness of God. Does that make sense? 
As we see that God oversees the entire process, we can be comforted and we can allow his holiness as we might not understand. What does it mean that, David, that God incited David? It's a little fuzzy on that. We can rest that seeing God's judgment and his hand over all things invites us to depend more upon him. It means that in salvation and in judgment, in discipline and in redemption, nothing can occur in the universe that God cannot use for the good of his people. In the mercy of God, God uses David and Israel's sin to secure and designate the place from that time forward would be the temple, the place where God's name would be honored, the place where God's people were to come together and remember his judgment and his mercy. They would seek to find atonement for their sins as they offered sacrifices. And in the grace and mercy of God, sin and guilt do not prevent the realization of God's plan. God actually factors that into it. Is that not comforting? Meet with individuals that, in counseling that they can act as if, as Christians, they've like, totally destroyed their life and they're irredeemable. Their mistakes have set them back. Like, and, and now they have all this work to do to get back to where God would want them to be. And it's comforting to know that everything that has happened in your life has happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he is going to use sin and evil and even your mistakes and your brokenness in his plan. We might not see it. We might be suffering in the pain of, of the present reality of being in that. But we trust based on this story and God's past faithfulness in our life that this is what God is doing. He is big enough to use evil and sin to accomplish his plan and his purposes. Nothing can thwart that. And if we don't see it in the story, we can see it in the cross. God uses evil and sin for good, redemptive purposes. He did it in the cross. Acts 2, 22 Paul's getting up right after Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come and he preaches a sermon. And listen to what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know yourselves. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Like God's I mean, Jesus' death on the cross was not as though God's like, oh, gosh, what's going to happen now? They took my son and they crucified him. That wasn't the plan. Okay, how are we going to? All right, I'll, I'll resurrect him. That, that'll change everything. No, no, no. Jesus' death on the cross was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But look what Peter says. It's not as though, and all you guys are off the hook. God did it all, so, no, he says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. See that tension? God raised him up. He says, loosening the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. It is as though in the mercy and grace of God, it's as though he incited the people of Israel to crucify his son Jesus. It's according to definite foreknowledge of God. It's according to his sovereign plan. I think 2 Samuel 24 shows us something of the beauty of the gospel. The anger of the Lord was and is kindled against evil and injustice and unrighteousness, against self-centeredness and rebellion. That hasn't changed. 
And while the Lord would be just and right to stretch out his hand against humanity and said, my anger is kindled against you, you're done. It was poured out upon his son, Jesus. He was the one who suffered the evil and the judgment of God upon himself. And, you know, Jesus couldn't look out and say, well, please avert your hand from these sheep. What have they done? No, no, no. He'd say, I'm the only sinless one. Yeah, yeah, these, these sheep, they've done wicked things. Punish them. He says, no, no, I'm sinless. I am the only one who is without sin, and I'm going to take the rebellion and the, the wrath and the anger upon myself that these people might be free and forgiven. It wasn't three years of famine. It wasn't three years of fleeing from enemies. It wasn't three days of pestilence in the land. It was death, not of the rebels that deserved it, but of Jesus himself. Not the one who committed any injustice and evil, but the perfect Lamb of God without blemish. We know in the power of God on the third day, Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He rose again. He undid death itself. And he demonstrated that he is going to be the first fruit in, in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? And, and on the third week, I was just, I'm not, I didn't plan all these threes to fall on the third week of Advent. And it's kind of cool though, right? On the third week, many churches in the world, we light the, the shepherd candle, the candle that is a reflection of the joy of Jesus' birth. The angel came to the shepherds and he said, behold, I'm, I bring you good news of great joy. That'll be for all people. Jesus is born. The gospel is good news of great joy for all people because Jesus was going to be delivered and killed according to the plan of God. It's not as though he said, I'm going to bring you good news of salvation and you guys better not mess this up. <laughs> I'm going to bring you news and depending on if it's good or bad is depending on how you respond to it. How are the people of Israel going to respond? No, he says, I'm going to bring you good news of great joy because this has already been determined. Jesus is going to die on the cross. He's going to raise again and he's going to offer forgiveness for any who would turn from their sins and trust in him. That's why it's good news. It's not dependent upon wake, weak frail, sinful rebels like you and me. That's not good news. Something that depends on me is not good news. Let me tell you, something that depends on you is not good news. But something that depends on God and on Christ and on his sovereignty and plan, that is good news. Amen? In the gospel, God doesn't simply provide a place for us to worship him. He doesn't simply provide an altar where we can worship the Lord. He secures an eternal place, a forever altar, a permanent temple, it's actually in us. The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. As we remember Advent, we're remembering the coming of Jesus and, and him securing this promise that God will be with us. He will actually indwell us. He is providing not just a physical land plot where later will be a temple built where people are to worship God and come into the presence of God. The provision of God in the gospel is he's actually preparing a place in your heart where he intends to dwell with you. We are the new temple of God. The very spirit of God indwells in us. And by the mercies of God, we don't present 
burnt offerings or peace offerings on a physical altar. We present our very selves, our bodies, as living sacrifices. It's kind of ironic to have a living sacrifice. <laughs> that doesn't happen. You have a sacrifice, you kill that thing. It's dead. Blood's shed, you burn it up, it's gone. So we're living sacrifices. It's like the self that we were, that's dead. And we're indwelled and living by the Spirit now. And we're supposed to keep in step with the Spirit. So church, may we allow the story of 2 Samuel, a story of anger and judgment and mercy and provision, to point us to the story of the gospel. of The anger of God being kindled against the sinful humanity. And his plan to crucify and deliver up his own son. Yet in his mercy, Jesus offered himself to be the punishment, the atonement, that we could be forgiven. And not just forgiven, but now indwelled with the the Holy Spirit. Just like in our own lives, we can see in the story that we are not always shown why God allows, or God even tests us, or why God allows evil, or why he allows suffering, but we can trust that the Lord disciplines those he loves and that he is big enough to use sin and evil and wickedness to accomplish his redemptive purposes. That's good news. His working and willing to draw us closer to himself, to increase our faith, to humble our pride, to open up our eyes in wonder, I think is what the story is inviting us into. Therefore, we respond with joy. We give thanks We praise God that even when we don't understand all he's doing in our life, even when we experience the pain and the brokenness of the world that is, we rejoice in the fact that our salvation has been accomplished and his coming is not dependent upon us. He will come. He will make all right again. He will establish shalom and we can find joy in what he's done and what he promised to do instead of looking out at our circumstances and getting depressed, getting anxious and getting fearful. The one who never sinned took your place. The shepherd laid down his life for you, his sheep. It's as have to say to his father, let your hand be against me and not against these people. The one who became a sacrifice for us so that judgment and death would be averted from his people, he invites you this morning to trust and respond in faith in him. May we depend upon his mercy and grace today, this Advent season. And would God give us grace, amen, to grow in dependence upon him and grow in the reverential awe, the fear of the Lord that is a sweet fear that draws us into his good and wise purposes. And would we respond in faith and trust, especially when we don't understand and they cause pain. It's easy during the Advent season to focus on all that you have to do. It's a busy season, there's Christmas concerts, there's Christmas work parties, there's all these people that want to get together, there's family drama to navigate. You've got Christmas lists to shop for, it's not like you have more time in December than any other month, and you have all these extra activities. We have people to see, gifts to buy, parties to attend. I wanted to share with you that I've found more peace and joy on centering and focusing my heart, not on what I must do. Not on what my to-do list has for the day. Not when I look at my calendar and I see how full it is. But when I keep the main focus of my heart and my mind 
trusting in God. That's the focus. That's the posture of my heart. Depending upon the Father, trusting in Christ, asking God to keep me in step with the Spirit, to be led and guided by the Spirit. Not a focus on external, but a focus on an internal, the heart. Am I trusting in Christ? Am I leaning upon him? God, help me throughout this day trust in him. I found that to be more of the path of joy and life and peace than focusing on all that I have to do throughout the day in my to-do list. You guys resonate with that? So let us engage in the disciplines and habits and practices, not because we want to focus on the internal matters, but because we want God to cultivate more in us a heart of dependence and trust. And I pray that as we consider the story of 2 Samuel 24, we look at how it fits into the Advent season, that increasingly this year, our focus would be on what God has done, what he is calling us to do, and his promises, and that that would cultivate and instill in us joy and praise and thanksgiving. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe and trust that it's living and active, that it doesn't return void. Lord, and we believe that, that your word was given to us, that, that we might be equipped for every good work, that we might be built up in love, that our faith would be formed, that we would grow in an understanding of your character and your promises and your work. And I pray that you'd help us as a church not to focus on the, the external, the activities, all that we must do as if that would shift our focus away from you and trusting in you and having faith in you and resting in you. And, and I, I think the scriptures describe all kinds of phrases to describe that reality, this, this inner dynamic of the fear of the Lord or abiding in Christ or keeping in step with the spirit. But I pray that you would help us as a people, as a church, as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, that it would produce in us the fruit of the spirit of joy and peace and patience and kindness. Father, help us to keep in step with the spirit. Not to turn to self-sufficiency and to pride and to arrogance. Lord, would, as we look at the Advent season, as we look forward to the new year, would you cultivate a, a deeper sense of rest and trust in you that it would lead to more prayer and praise and thanksgiving and joy. Would this be a year in which we experience that the joy of the Lord is our strength? Lord, help us to grow in this way, in this, in this direction. Lord, thank you that as in 2 Samuel 24, judgment and anger is not the final word. You provided a place, you provided atonement, you provided judgment was averted in sacrifice. And we thank you that this points us towards ultimately that Jesus averts judgment, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the condemnation for our sin has fallen upon Christ. Thank you. Lord, help us to, to live in the freedom of this gospel and to share it freely with others in word and in the demonstration of the gospel made visible in our church and in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.